Hey folks, Dr. Jamar Tisby here with another episode of Footnotes, bringing you news and views to help you become a more informed neighbor, advocate, and believer. I have another author interview in this episode. The author's name is John Blake. He's a journalist for CNN. He's also biracial, black and white. And we're talking about his brand new book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. From the book's description, it says it's an award-winning journalist who tells the story of his quest to reconcile with his white mother and the family he'd never met and how faith brought them all together. We talk about everything from The Wire and West Baltimore to mental illness to how journalism has changed in terms of covering race and racial identity. So Whatever you think you can expect from a memoir like this, from a story like this, be prepared to be surprised. It's truly a compelling story. Enjoy this interview with John Blake on his book, More Than I Imagined, which is available now wherever books are sold. Well, I'm excited to welcome for the first time to Footnotes, John Blake. Welcome, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Jamar. And folks should know, we've been in contact for a couple of years now. I think I came onto your radar. I probably had read some stuff that you wrote without realizing it was you putting a face and name kind of a thing. But right. do you recall how, how we first got connected? Oh, man, I don't know. I, I just remember <laughs> hearing a lot about the color of a compromise. You talked about the difference between complicit Christianity and courageous Christianity. And that yeah. got my attention. And I would call you to just to weigh in on issues about race and religion. And it just seemed to start from there. And people should know, like, what's your day job? How, how, how do you how do you keep your hands busy? I'm part of the liberal media, as they say. <laughs> no, I can say that. Um, I'm a senior writer and producer at CNN. So I write a lot about race and religion and particularly race. So um, and it's part of my job. I've been a, a, a writer, a journalist for like 30 years. And most of that time, I've written about race. So I'm old enough to remember covering the Rodney King protest. Yeah. So I've been on the front lines of some of the biggest racial stories in this country's history for the past 25, 30 years. So, and, and now I'm at CNN. And folks should know you're one of the rare writers and journalists in national news media that really gets religion, yeah. Christianity, yeah. and especially yeah. evangelicalism. Yes. Um, so, I mean, just to shout out your work, like anytime you publish something, particularly on those topics like race and, and evangelicalism or Christianity, absolute must read. So I appreciate you elevating those issues because sometimes it's 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 hard to get attention. Are you it, it, do you find that as you pitch stories? Uh, do I find that it's difficult for for some folks to get the importance or the relevance of this like evangelical or Christian stuff? In the past, in the past, I've been a member of white evangelical churches. So I, you know, I'm, I talk in a book about dual identities, being black and white, but I've also had dual religious identities. I grew up in a black mm -hmm. Pentecostal church. So I'm familiar with the world of James Cone and Howard Thurman, but I also came of age in a white evangelical church. So I know my Francis Schaefer, I know my C.S. Lewis, <laughs> so it's like I'm kind of bicultural. So yes. that world is very comfortable for me. But in the past, as a religious journalist, the religion beat was considered something that uh, it was not considered a, a glamorous beat. It wasn't that important. You wrote about sermons, church announcements. 
But, you know, in the past couple of years, we see with the growth of Christian nationalism, which you have really written eloquently about, this is an incredibly important beat now. And so now the beat has become a lot more prestigious. So, yeah, I, I, I love writing about faith. There you go. Well, we're here to talk about your book, More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. What a title. I love it. Um, As a writer, uh, I'm always interested in the evolution of book titles. So Mm -hmm. as you recall, were there any other titles that y'all kicked around as... as, uh... (laughs) No, no. uh, You know, that kind of came really early. And I have to give credit to Convergent, my publisher, they went, They were on board with it. They didn't try to come up with their own titles. They were very open to it. And um, the, the the title part of it, more than I imagine, comes from one of my favorite scriptures. Uh, God can do immeasurably more than we ask or even imagine from Paul in the New Testament. And I love that scripture because it's something I experienced in my life where I grew up in West Baltimore. I never expected much out of my life. And as I grew older, all these beautiful things started happening to me. I was like, wow, this is more than I ever imagined. So that's partly the meaning. But the other part, of course, is when I met my mom and getting to know the white family members, my white relatives, that was way more than I imagined, too. Mm -hmm. So it kind of works on different levels. And I wanted to have a title that was optimistic, that -hmm. was hopeful, because that's so difficult to convey, convey right now when you're writing about race. 100%. You kind of hinted at this, but, you know, here's a fun way to to ask the question. What does The Wire and your childhood have to do with one another? (laughs) Wow, yeah. Um, I grew up literally where The Wire is filmed. And um, and I also grew up in the same neighborhood where Freddie Gray, a Black man, was arrested. That That sparked one of the worst racial violent protests in our country's history. So my neighborhood has become like this symbol of Black anger, despair, the symbol of how intractable supposedly racism is, that it can't change. It's a permanent part of the landscape. So that's why I look at The Wire. And it's weird for me to look at The Wire um, in those episodes because I see that's my school, junior high school. Mm. Uh, That's the neighborhood. That's the corner I used to stand on to catch the bus to school. Mm. Even some of the nicknames in The Wire, like Weebay, I knew a wee bay. I knew all these people. Oh. So it was very strange. And I wanted that to be part of the story because I wanted to show that this is a very unlikely place, one, to have a white mother, and two, to find racial reconciliation. Because the only stories that come out of West Baltimore are stories about racial despair. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates comes from West Baltimore neighborhood. So I wanted to kind of like show this is a different type of story in that that's what I tried to do. Yeah. And from that perspective, how 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 does your perspective of West Baltimore change or, or differ from the inside? Um, how did you view it growing up? It wasn't the TV show that we all right. saw. What was right. it like for you? It changed. In the beginning, growing up in West Baltimore, I saw community. Mm. It was uh, people standing on the corners singing doo-wop songs at night. Mm. People on a porch, like the old ladies in their rocking chair, watching people. Uh, everybody out talking and laughing. Um, people were poor, but everybody knew each other. Everybody knew everybody's business. But then it gradually changed, became more violent. 
and it became became it felt more like you were being occupied by the police mm. police helicopters flying around all the time police brutality mass incarceration people getting arrested for nothing crack cocaine hit then assault weapons people weren't fighting with fists people were getting killed with assault weapons things got more dangerous there's a, a line from the wire where a guy says the game is the same it just got more fierce that's what it was like the game was the same you had poverty you had violence but it just ramped up and i was there and i saw that transition and all this was happening knowing that i had a white mother mm. and in my world you don't want to have a white mother i mean there was so much hostility toward white people that i was ashamed of that and i hid it from people i even said when i went to school i marked her race as black on school form but i didn't want anybody to know because literally you could get your butt kicked for having a white mother so that was the kind of world i grew up in that's relates to the wire i think that's such a important point that we should pause at like mm -hmm. you made an intentional effort at some point to to not advertise that you were biracial right. had a white mother right when when did that come about that you were you you sort of made that conscious decision and what led to it? Was there a particular incident or event kind of a thing? So I, the way I, I think about it, it's a good question. Somebody said that uh, racism is caught rather than taught, meaning there's so many messages we get taught about race racism that no one says it. You just absorb it in your environment. So growing up in my world, it was just obvious that white people weren't welcome. You know, racial slurs were very common. We saw police brutality. And um, I, it, it, it wasn't even a conscious decision. It was like something I made for survival. Mm. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be able to go to school when I fight all the time. And, um, and also, the weird thing is, I shared that hostility toward white people. That's the weird thing. Um, even though I knew I had a white mom, I didn't like white people because I saw what was happening in my neighborhood and I saw what, how white police officers were treating people. And I also knew there was this whole white family that wanted nothing to do with me because my father was black. So that was all in me as well. So I understood that anger toward white people in my neighborhood because I shared it, even though I had a white mother. And that's why I called myself a closeted biracial person. I just kind of hid in a closet and I kind of like repressed that side of my identity. Self-protection, survival. Yeah, it's, uh, it's dramatic. And it tells us it speaks a little bit to how the ideology of race affects our identity, which this whole book, to me, is is a story of identity. It's, yeah. a, it's a journey of identity yeah. that in many ways you're still on, but you're, you're also um, very courageously revealing some of the process in that journey. Um, because of this, these questions of identity, I'm curious what you think about definitions of racism that say, you know, the, the shorthand definition I use is, is prejudice plus power, because we want to talk about the systemic institutional dynamics of it. And, and some people will take that statement so far as to say black people can't be racist. Yes. Yes. Because there's that power dynamic, right? So, so how do you think about definitions of, of racism? What do you think about that one? Is there a more helpful way that you as somebody who has all of this experience, right? More helpful ways we can think about racism. I can tell you what I've experienced. 
Um, I'm familiar with that definition that Black people can't be racist because we don't ha have power. And I remember talking to Dr. Ibram Kendi about this. Mm -hmm. My experience, forget the intellectual side, is that that's not true, that Black people can be racist. We're just as human as anybody else. And um, when I grew up, I experienced a lot of that racism. I'll give you a story example. Um, anytime I would get in a fight, people would surround me and they would say, look, look, it's a fight, fight between a nigga and a white. Mm. And I was a white person. I was frequently called hunky white boy and I had to fight all the time. My brother was, younger brother was walking by the railroad tracks one day in Baltimore and some people called I hate white boy. And he took up these big chunks of rocks and threw it at him, hit him in the head and he was bleeding and chased him home because he was light skinned. So I experienced that. Now, people might say that's that's not racism because they had no power. Uh, I, I just didn't experience it that way. And then you take it to another level. You say we don't have power. Did Obama not have any power? Does Clarence Thomas not have any power? I don't know if that definition of, of, of racism holds for me, you know, my experience and intellectually. I mean, yeah, I, that's the best way I can answer that. That's exactly what I, I was hoping to to learn from you. Um, the way I typically express it is absolutely people of any race can have racial prejudice, which, yeah. you know, you, you can, can call that racism. The only right. reason I talk any differently is because most of the time white people want to emphasize the attitudinal part and not yeah. the institutional part of, of yes. racism. So I, I find that. Yes, I agree with you yeah. on that part. Yeah. So um, we've talked about this. That It's a powerful term, closeted biracial. <laughs> oh, uh, tell us about your family. How did your parents meet? My parents met um, in 1963 at a time when interracial marriage was illegal in much of the country. There were no role models like Obama, Kamala Harris. You couldn't turn on a commercial, I mean, television set and see commercial with interracial couples and biracial children. It was taboo. It was forbidden. A black man could literally get killed for trying to court a white woman. But my father met my mom in a hospital. He worked there part, part time and she was a nurse's assistant. And he just saw her and asked her out for lunch. And she, she said yes. And then they began to date. Now, that just sounds so simple. But in 1963, for a black man to do that and a white woman to accept, that was incredibly dangerous. Yes. And uh, and they went through a lot to do. Uh, they they went through a lot of persecution, a lot of dangerous situations. But that's how they met. What was it about your father that made yeah. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. bold? <laughs> OK, that, that's an excellent question. And I've, I've wondered about that because. My father uh, was a merchant seaman, merchant mm -hmm. marine, so he spent most of his time traveling overseas. And I think that's the key part to understanding why he was so bold. Part of it was, here's a man who was born during a Great Depression, grew up in Jim Crow era. He knew he knew very well what could happen to Black men. I remember him telling me about Emmett Till and how that shook him up. So my question is, okay, you know what happened to Emmett Till. Uh, and for those who don't know, you know, Black man who was, young Black man who was killed for allegedly whistling at a white woman in Mississippi. Why would you do that? And I think a key part of it was that my father spent most of his time overseas. Mm. When you were traveling overseas in the Merchant Marines in the post-World War II America, 
that was probably the most integrated space you could find as a black man. Because mm-hmm. overseas, there's no segregation, not not to the extent of the United States. And he was treated as a man. And and when he was on those ships, that was a different setting. You know, historically, black men in this country have always, not always, but have run away to sea to find their freedom that they couldn't find on shores. And my father was part of that tradition. I talk about uh this book in um in my in my in my book. Uh, I talk about the psychologist in my book, a guy named Gordon Allport. And he talks about the nature of prejudice. And he talks about this social science experiment that they had in the Merchant Marines, where in the beginning, just before World War II, there was this Merchant Marine Union that wanted to admit Black members. And all these white members didn't want that to happen. They, there was tremendous resistance, but they admitted them. And they found something curious happened, that once these white sailors begin to sail with black men, their racial attitudes changed and they became more accepting. My father was part of the first wave of those black merchant seamen that entered that union. Oh. And what I'm saying in my book is that when that experience not only changed the white men, it changed him because he was accustomed to being treated like a man on, on the ship. When you're on a ship, it doesn't matter the color of the man. When you're being attacked by German U-boats or there's a storm at sea, you need to know that the man that you're with can protect your life. So it creates this egalitarian spirit and this acceptance that he experienced that he took home with him. So when he saw a white woman, he's like, hey, I'm a man. This is the way I'm accustomed to living. I'm going to ask her out. And that's what he did. I think you're absolutely right. I, I tell my students that after wars, particularly World War One and World War II, when Black soldiers had the opportunity yeah to get outside of the U.S. racial context and experience a different reality that certainly was not without racism or prejudice, but had a very different tone and character than what they experienced in the Jim Crow era. They would often come back more confident, demanding more rights. Um, I mean, this is what Medgar Evers did. He comes back uh, from World War II, he's storms the beaches of Normandy. He comes back and he's like, "I'm going to register to vote. <laughs> like y'all right. not going to stop me. You don't know what I've seen and I've been through." Um, so, so yeah, I think I think your 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 instinct is is accurate on that in terms of your father having that exposure. Now, your mother and your father were together for how long? About three years. Three years. And they had you and any other My younger brother. Yeah, he's uh, we're not brother. even a year apart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. And, so, how did each of their respective families take that? Well, my Which is the whole book basically. <laughs> well, I'll give you an indication of how my mother's family reacted when my father went on one of my his first dates with my mom. He asked a cab driver to drive him to their neighborhood, and he wouldn't do it. Because their neighborhood had a reputation for being so racist. It was a white working class neighborhood where if you were black, you walked in, you you, you literally could get hurt or maybe even worse killed. So when my father still insisted on going, when he knocked on the door, my mother's father answered the door, called him the N-word, physically assaulted him and had him arrested. And then he went, goes back and still sees her again. So to answer your question, her family, uh, working class Irish people, hated my father, didn't want anything to do with him, tried to uh, prevent this union from happening. My mother's father, I mean, my father's family reacted a different way. 
because my mother was bold in her own way. She would come over to the black neighborhood in Baltimore and knock on the door and ask my father. And that was incredibly unusual. You know, black people were sitting on the porch like, who is this young white woman seeing this black man and want to walk him openly? But my black father's family a little bit more accepting. And what they said still is mysterious to me. They said that when my mom came among them, that she betrayed no self-consciousness. There is a sometimes when white people around black people, you can kind of tell they've never really been around black people. They're kind of mm-hmm. stiff and yeah. nervous and looking over their shoulder. She was nothing like that. They said she fit right in and they accepted her and they loved her. They said she was really witty, fun. Love to tell stories, and one of my brothers says, "If you would have told her she was white, she probably would have been surprised. She, she just, <laughs> you know, like she didn't really see race. And I don't think that's quite true, but there was a level of ease and comfort that she had with them that shocked them. That's incredible. Now, the subtitle of the book is "What a Black Man right. Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew." Right. So, in what sense did you not know your mother? Mine, I did not. I'd meet my mom until I was 17. So where I grew up in Baltimore, she disappeared from my life not long after I was born. And no one told me why she disappeared. All I was told was this. Your mother's name is Shirley. She's white. And her family hates Black people. That's all I knew. I, I, I didn't know what she looked like, the sound of her voice. I had no memory. So I grew up. I mean, it was like this half of my, this whole other side of my identity was amputated. I didn't know anything about her. And so I knew nothing. And then suddenly at 17, I'm on my way to college and my father comes to me and he says, hey, you want you want to meet your mom? And it's a bombshell. There's no preparation. We're driven out to this building in, in the outskirts of, uh, outskirts of Maryland. And we go in there and we see her. And it's then at that moment we realize why we didn't see her, have any relationship with her, because where we met her was a mental institution and where we discovered that she had a severe form of mental illness called schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. That's the first time I met my mom. And even as we drove out to that mental institution that day, nobody, no one warned us. Nobody said, now listen, prepare yourself. It was just total shock. And so the rest of the story, to, to go back to your question, even though I met her, I felt like I still couldn't know her because of her illness. And the rest of the story is how I learned to know her and to see her despite her illness, to see past her illness, and to see that that risk taker, that defiant young woman that my father recognized was still there. It just took me years and years to see it and to finally see her and to finally know her. Is the schizophrenia what caused your mother to leave? Was she having an episode? Did she want to protect you? Did her your father say enough is enough? It's unclear. All I know about that is that her father was the one who institutionalized her. And I don't know if he institutionalized her because her illness was becoming worse or because he saw her with this Black man giving birth to two Black sons. Um, I do know that from talking to my father that even when she gave birth to me, she was exhibiting signs of it. And so she was definitely exhibiting signs of it. Um, Was it race? Was it mental illness? It could have been a combination of both that took her away. But as one of my relatives says, you know, you would see this woman come to the house of my father's family, you know, entertain people, command the room. And then he said, suddenly she just disappeared. No one talked about her. She was gone. And we were just left there. 
knowing what your mother wrestled with, how has that affected your perspective on mental health and mental illness um, for yourself, for the outlook in general? uh, Two ways. Um, I, I see some, some, some parallels between how people with mental illnesses are treated and how marginalized people like black people are treated. Um, In fact, I would say in some ways, in some ways, people with severe mental illnesses, in some ways, I almost feel like they're still stigmatized in a way that's even worse than Black people. Um, only now are people starting to talk openly about having family members and friends who have mental illnesses. And so when you have a group of people that are treated with all these stereotypes and all these assumptions, um, that's kind of shunted aside, nobody talk, talks about them. I just saw that parallel between that and, and Black people. But the second part, the immediate thing that I experienced when I met my mom um, and and learning that she had this mental illness is that the immediate effect it had on me is that it widened my racial empathy. Mm. For the first time in my life, I felt empathy for a white person when I met her. Before that, growing up in the world that I did, I didn't think any white person could understand what it meant to be Black, to suffer, to be treated with contempt, to be looked down upon. But as soon as I met my mom and I saw her in that hellish place in an institution and realized that she had been living there for most of my life, I thought, wow, I've never seen a Black person suffer like that. And so for the first time, that began to broaden my racial perspective in a way I don't think anything else could have. Wow. I want to talk a bit about your journalism career, but as sort of an entry point, this is maybe out of left field, but it's something that I think about. As we look at public figures who exhibit erratic behavior, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of Kanye West, yay. I'm thinking of Donald Trump, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we see what they do and what they say. And people sort of toss out these diagnoses, <laughs> Based on, you know, people they don't know or, or or just what they see in the news. How do you try to think about that? How would you encourage us to think about that when it seems the behavior of these folks is, is so unpredictable and so outlandish that it, it, it makes you wonder or get or, or think about is there is there a mental illness in the picture? Um, you being more informed and sensitive about these things, is there a way that we can think, um, you know, and have a healthy attitude about it? Yeah, I, I think just as now more people are more aware to use more sensitivity when they talk about race. Like you won't hear a lot of uh, white people who have a conscience who care about race call a black man a boy mm-hmm. or use certain terms because they're aware that there's a whole history behind it and that it's not sensitive, that you shouldn't talk about people this way. I think that we're at this point that we have to learn how to talk about people who are exhibiting signs of mental illnesses to talk about them in a way that also displays that same sensitivity. So you talk about Kanye. I can't pronounce his new name, so bear with me. (laughs) But, you know, I hear people, you know, make fun of him. And I think about my mom. And I'm saying that's a person with that's a person with a sickness and illness, and we should we, and now and the way we talk about them should reflect that. 
So my hope is that people will talk about them with more sensitivity. I'll give you another example. Somebody uh, described my mother. They they said, uh, you know, he grew up with a schizophrenic mom. That's that's not a, that's an inartful way to describe. You don't define a person by their illness. You don't mm. say a cancerous mom. You know, mm. she had an illness. You know, mom with schizophrenia is more apt. So little things like that, how we describe people. You know, you don't say people were slaves. They were enslaved. They were always human beings. I think we just have to, re- you know, display that kind of sensitivity the way we talk about them. That's truly, truly helpful uh, in a very empathetic way to think about that. Um, Once you met your mom, what did the relationship look like going forward? Did you have much contact with her beyond that? I did. Um, It was a strange situation because the mom is typically the caretaker. She looks and raises the child. But as soon as I met her as a young man, I became her caretaker. Mm. And I I had these, I think in the back of my mind as a kid, I had these ideas that when I met my mom, that she would be this certain way, that I could tell her all about who I am, my life, my dreams. And that was part of the sadness when I met her, that I couldn't talk to her that way, that I had to take care of her. So after I met her, I uh, constantly kept in contact with her. I had to, visiting her sending her things she needed, writing her letters. I had to let her know that she was loved because when people with mental illnesses are in these institutions or group homes, they're often forgotten. So you have to stay in contact with them, not only to let them know that they're loved and they're cared for, but to let them know the caretakers that you can't mistreat them. Because here are people in their family who love them, who are going to visit, who are going to check up. So I constantly stayed in contact with her and our relationship just grew over time. Were you always interested in journalism? Um, Oh, uh, and I'll say this for folks. uh, The book is so readable and I love it when journalists write because y'all get straight to the point. You move the story along. Folks like me, academics, we get stuck in the weeds and people are dozing off. Right. Um, So it's a very readable book and good job on that. It is a story that just you, you, you want to run with it. Um, so just this this journalistic background, is that something that was always there? Is that something that arose later on? How did you get into that? Uh, it, was a, it was pretty much always there because I grew up surrounded by magazines and newspapers. My father loved to read. My family is very in- interested in politics. Baltimore, where I grew up, was a big newspaper town. And so by the time I was in 10th grade, I knew I wanted to be a, a journalist. and. Um, and when you talk about, you know, the book moving along, um, that is true. That reflects some of my journalistic training. I wanted to, I wanted, you know, I wanted to read like a movie, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason it moved along, I've heard a lot of people say it reads like a thriller. Like you want to know what happens next. Yes. Part of the reason it read like that is because I didn't know what happened next. <laughs> because I was experiencing a lot of these things as I was writing it. I was discovering things, things I didn't know. So that's why I kind of, that's in part why it reads like that too. And you experienced racism in the newsroom. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it that way. Yes. I'm glad you said it that way because it's a reality that that we got to talk about. So when you first got into it to now, you know, what are what are some of the things you experienced maybe in, in now? Is it is it much different? Oh, it's much different now. Um, when I first became a journalist in the early 90s, uh, 
black people didn't exist except as as you know problem people the only time they wrote about us is when there was a, a riot or something bad happened i remember my one of my first job it was my first job in la a night and i covered cops i would write about you know crime and shootings and a white editor came up to me in a newsroom one day and he said if someone is killed and if they're black or brown now he said if they're black we're not really interested we're only interested in white homeowners those are the ones you write stories about and then he just walked away and, and he, he didn't feel and he didn't feel self-conscious about it when i looked around the newsroom in the early day it was just white men who ran everything you didn't see too much color but gradually over time it's different and at cnn when i look around the newsroom it's like a new world all these people of color, not just black, Latino, Asian, you you really see that. And and that's been a that's been a great transformation. And I've seen that. It's an incredible journey. And and there are still vestiges, right? Like we just had this terrible mass shooting in Louisville um, right. at a bank where most of the victims were white. Um, but then down the street was a shooting where a black man got killed same day, same neighborhood, basically local papers covered it, but hardly any national attention. So I'm glad you've been in these newsrooms because I think you've been part of the change to keep this on the radar for people. Um, I cannot help, but just want to, hug little john blake as a child oh, um, because you dealt with it seems like so much so many questions questions about your own identity questions about your mother's identity questions about your mother's family yeah um what did having all those questions teach you about sort of living in the midst of uncertainty with it all uh living in the midst of uncertainty well two things come to all come to mind immediately one is what i discovered is that when you're in the midst of living among amidst all this uncertainty as you describe it that it seems like there's always somebody god sends mm. that helps you uh that helps you believe in yourself and help you believe that you can have a future and one of the people I talk about in my book is an aunt. She was my brother's younger sister. And she watched me. She watched my brother on the weekend. And she was our surrogate mom. And she was like this, um, she was like this lighthouse in a sea of chaos. I held on to her. And she was the one who encouraged me to read books and all those things. So she was instrumental in helping me get through my childhood. And there were other people that uh, helped along the way. But secondly, what, what helped is faith. Uh, when I started to join these interracial churches, when I started to meet white evangelical Christians who treated me as a brother and I became friends with them, that also helped me heal. And so uh, relationships, like not only, you know, people being sent your way, but developing relationships with people that you, that may not seem like you, it might not seem like you have that much in common with them. They might seem different. But when you develop relationships with them, that can really help heal. And then finally, that's what happened with the white family, my white family members. I never thought 
that these people who rejected me, who called me zebra child, who called my father the N-word, that one day I would call them family, that we would have this loving relationship. And not only that, that they would teach me lessons in forgiveness and empathy. Mm-hmm. I never expected that. So, so you know, people in relationships, to me, those are key to getting through tough times. You use this term in the book, radical integration. Right. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, that's a term coined by a scholar named Michelle Adams. So as I'm writing a book, I'm also thinking about not only my experiences as a as a man, like what enabled me to connect with my white family members when we had all these racial divisions? And why is it not happening in our country? And I started thinking, like, what do we need? Like, what really changes people? And I, like many people, experienced this huge letdown when I saw Obama get elected. I thought, man, maybe we're turning a corner. And then Trump elected, then January 6th, and where we are now. And I kept on asking myself, like, what is the missing ingredient? What did I learn from my family experience that maybe we could apply? And that's when it came to me. I was like, you know, the things that really change people are relationships. You know, facts don't change people. Relationships do. And I began to read a lot more King. I began to read a lot of the people uh, like Gordon Allpart who talked about integration and what it meant. And I came across Michelle Adams' uh, paper on radical integration. And to me, it it cleared up what I thought about integration. I thought integration meant assimilation. Mm. That Black people were expected to be more docile versions of white people. Michelle mm. Adams says, no, what we need is radical integration. And integration is also not just about sharing space, but sharing power. We don't give up our culture. We don't give up these things. And that that's th- what this country needs. And so I use that term because I felt like that's partly what I experienced as a man that helped me get over this white hostility toward white people. I went into these integrated settings with white people, but they weren't expecting me to be assimilated. They accepted myself, my culture, my anger. And that was a experience of radical integration that really changed me. And I think we need more of that. Um, I I wrote a story this Sunday, and I said that any attempt to address racism cannot forget this one elemental lesson, that relationships, we have to emphasize that too. Now, that's a dangerous message for a Black man to say, because there's some people will say, oh, you're saying we don't need justice. We don't need policy. No, I'm not saying if Black people hug white people, racism will disappear. (laughs) I'm just saying that we can't give up on trying to create these interracial communities and relationships because that's also an indispensable part of fighting racism. I can I can give a white person your book, Kendi's book, you know, all these things. You can take them to a, a, a protest, all these things, but I don't know if that will change people as much as them being in a relationship with a Black person, an intimate, sustained relationship and in a community. I think that's really important. And we've forgotten that. In my second book, How to Fight Racism, I talk about the ARC of racial justice. And mm-hmm. ARC is an acronym that stands for awareness. And the R stands for relationships. And the mm-hmm. C is for commitment. And and I agree that we can't forget the importance, often the centrality of relationships to uh, working for justice. And I think actually... Um, if conservatives miss the systemic part, 
which falls under the heading of commitment in the arc of racial justice, then I think progressives sometimes miss the relationship part um, yeah. as far as interracial and whatnot, because precisely what you said, the they would interpret an emphasis on relationships or prioritizing of relationships as black people and white people just hug and and racism will go away. That's not what you're saying. But um, I do appreciate you bringing up the importance of relationships. And on that note, you mentioned anger. Yeah. You could have just expressed the anger in the book and left it there. Right. Um, you took what I would term a much more ironic approach, a much more peacemaking, bridge building approach. Um, is that is that just who you are? Is that something you had to get to? How much of an intentional choice? Why did you take uh, that approach? It's not who I am because I I, have, I I experienced a lot of anger growing up, and I still feel it. Like you know, someone asked me the other day. He said, you know, it's really good that you're not angry anymore. I'm like, no. And I said, I think there are instances where I should be angry. It's healthy to be angry. If I see a black man being suffocated on on the video by a white police officer, I should be angry. I should be angry that people are afraid to go outside because they're afraid that they're going to be the victim of a mass shooting and children are being blown away in schools. I think there's a healthy anger that is totally okay. Jesus cleared the temple, right? Mm -hmm. He was angry, you know? Um, but what I don't want to do is become consumed by hatred, where I overgeneralize generalize about a group of people. And to try to get to your question, I found that the anger I experienced prevented me from seeing how the white members of my family were so sorry about mm -hmm. what they had done to me and my brother when we were kids. I was so angry that I couldn't see it for years. It, it prevented me from connecting with them when they were trying to connect with me. And one of the things that helped me deal with my anger was a guy named Howard Thurman. I remember um, when I read Jesus and the Disinherited, and he talked about how if you become angry, and I'm paraphrasing, that in a sense, you have let your oppressor control you, that when you give in to anger, and that the Sermon on the Mount is a lot about dealing with anger and that Jesus was oppressed person. Jesus would understand what it meant to be Black in the Jim Crow era. He knew that type of humiliation and anger that you had to live with. And that he's like, you have to get past that. So that really helped me. And it really helped me connect with the white members of my family. But don't get me wrong. I think there's times when we should be angry. There's nothing wrong with it. But I'm what I'm trying to talk, what I was trying to avoid is a type of anger where I just couldn't see how these white members of my family were reaching out to me in these incredible moving ways. And I, I couldn't accept it. We talked about the term radical integration. Um we can talk about the term racial reconciliation. Um, folks yeah. who, who know my story know I've made a very intentional shift in language to, to talk more about racial justice than racial reconciliation, not putting relationships aside, but just, you know, different connotation there is with all you've been through, all you've seen and covered as a journalist and, and all of that is racial reconciliation passe. I, I mean, is that kind of Pollyannish? I think a lot of people, feel that it is. And and I, I told you, you know, before, I felt more nervous in this book. I mean, I felt more nervous talking about integration and racial reconciliation than talking about all these other more bizarre incidents in my book. 
like some of them involving the paranormal supernatural. It seems so uncool to even talk, to even use the word integration. It's like using post-racial. Mm-hmm. It's like, saying, let's go to the Blockbuster video store tonight. I mean, <laughs> it was like from another era. But I think to myself, I mean, I've been on the front lines of writing about race for a long time. I've seen one racial reckoning after another come and go. Mm. I've seen all these brilliant people like yourself in your books come out. They don't really, they change people, but not enough. I've seen the videos. They don't change people. I feel like you need, you need to have those relationships. It has to be part of the toolkit. We can't abandon that. And if we don't have that, we're going to have what we have having now. I, I think of a little story I heard of, I've been reading about LBJ, the president, because I've been trying to understand, like, what were people thinking in the 50s and 60s when they started to talk about the term integration? And he said something interesting. He was talking to Bill Moyers, the journalist who was his uh, press secretary at the time. And he said that the opposite of integration is not desegregation, but disintegration, Mm. a nation unraveling, meaning in a multiracial democracy, when you have people living separate and apart, you things you don't have that connective tissue that you need for democracy and things unravel. And what does that unraveling look like? I think it looks like exactly what we're seeing now. It's exhausting to live in a country with so much violence, so much racial divisions, people living apart. That can't continue. So that's why I, I do think that racial reconciliation should be part of what we talk about and, and, and not just racial justice, which is kind of part of it. Absolutely. On, on a practical level, do you have suggestions uh, yeah. for, for what we do? Here's one, I think, one of the key findings. Um, I, I talk about the psychologist named Gordon Allport in my book. He talks about this thing called contact theory. And what he says is that people have this idea that racism is like a is like a intrinsic in human beings. Like, this is just part of who we are. We can't conquer it. Allport is like, no. No, we have plenty of social science, plenty of studies to show that racial prejudice can be reduced. And one of the ways you do it is kind of an odd way is when you get groups of people together to talk about race, that's good, but it has limited impact. But you get people of different races together who have a history of you know, hostility, but you get together for a larger common purpose to work on something together that's when the magic happens. That's when a lot of racial prejudice evaporates. Now that might sound abstract, but consider this. Remember the movie, Remembering the Titans? Mm-hmm. With Denzel it? Okay. Story, black and white players integrated, a, a high school is trying to integrate in the early 70s. They can't stand one another. But when they join the team for a larger purpose and they try to win a championship, they see each other's common humanity. And that's when the racial prejudice evaporated. I think we need to create spaces in our public life when we can bring people of different races together. Example would be like a, a program on national service. Mm. Why not have something like a modern day civilian conservation corps that we had in a, you know, doing a new deal where we pay kids two years, you know, we'll pay your way through college. If after you get out of college, you give us two years of national service. Think about the power of bringing black, white, brown, rich, young, Republican, Democrat, independent, all these people together. United in being an American for a larger purpose to improve the country. I think things like that could go a large way to helping us. I absolutely love that you said that on this podcast and in the book. 
because I've come to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one of the things that one of the ways we've gotten off track and that is given something like racial reconciliation a bad name is when churches or institutions pursue unity and diversity for diversity's sake mm-hmm. without some broader mission or yeah. cause that brings them together. So for instance, I'm in this working group of theologians and historians. Uh, we found this long lost journal of a white abolitionist. Uh, he kept this journal from 1839 to 1841 while he was on a missions trip with black Christians to Jamaica. And what we're looking at is how in the antebellum era, they were able to foster a healthy, not perfect by any means, but a healthy interracial cooperation. And one of the conclusions we've come to is they weren't making being interracial the goal. The goal was the abolition of slavery. (laughs) And because of that, they came together across all of these lines of race and class and even gender um, to work toward a common purpose. So, And then I love the Civilian Conservation Corps. I was part of the Youth Conservation Corps in high school. Mm-hmm. I did. Uh, uh, we we maintained the uh, county park system, uh, the forest preserves, and it was a random <laughs> assemblage of people. And, you know, I'm a teenager, late teens at this point. So they're from different high schools, some are in college, different parts of the county. I never would have interacted with them just in the normal course of events. And so 100% agree, some sort of service common service that that especially young people get them while they're early that will make a big old difference brilliant well you know that's what the military does so well that's why the military (laughs) is the most integrated institution and that's why i believe you're getting conservatives attack the military for being woke because they know it's doing you know it's it's promoting that type of uh racial solidarity that i think is threatening to people but yeah, the military is the most integrated institution that we have. Because why? In the military, it's about the mission, the larger. It's not about diversity. You know, initially, it's about can you trust that person that could save your life? It's about the mission. We're all soldiers in this battle. And that's what my father experienced exactly. as a merchant marine on those ships, sailing with those white men. Here's one of the things I found really incredible about my father. I never heard him say a racial slur about a white person. Mm. Very angry what, you know, at the injustice and talked a lot about it. But because I think he had spent all those time sailing with white men, he could see them as individuals. He didn't generalize about all white people. And I think it's extremely difficult for a black man who grew up in the Jim Crow era to do, you know, so, and I appreciate it. He left that example for me. That's, uh, we've, we sort of come full circle with your yeah. father and the merchant Marines and, and, and the way that he was able to, like you said, depersonalize it, um, not make it about all white people, this all white people that I think, and and it's, I do think it's because he had that experience of, well, I got to trust this person next to me, no matter where they're from, what they look like, et cetera, et cetera. Lastly, John, you know, this is a very personal book. Uh, It's just your first book. Second book. But the first book book was nothing like this. I mean, this is like opening up a vein, you know? Right. Um, so I'm just wondering, you know, why now for for this story, for you to open up that main, bleed on the page, let your, you know, reveal your soul and your family 
Um, what was it about this moment that made it the right time? It's a good question. Um, there are probably multiple answers on a basic level. I was old enough to have perspective on these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a while for me to get a handle on these these issues. And, and, and so it just took time. I couldn't have written this probably three years ago. Mm. But I think on a second part of that answer is that um, I really started thinking about this when I covered the Freddie Gray protest. And it really became urgent during the George Floyd protest because I, I, I saw this dangerous turn that I feel like a lot of people have taken. And that is they believe that racism is just a permanent part of mm. American, that there's no hope. What's the use of voting? What's the use of trying to reach out to people? Because nothing can change. And I started to think that way because mm. I'm a journalist and I see this. And yet I looked at my family and I said, wow, I come from this place that is not some symbol of racial hope. And I come from this family where white members wanted nothing to do with us, yet we somehow became a family. How did that happen? And I said, maybe I can share this story and maybe this can give people hope because it's given me a lot of hope. So I think that's part of the reason too. I wanted to tell a story that would give people hope. And just to be like more concrete about it, almost every story I read about a a black man talking about growing up, when I look at the book cover, it's an angry black man staring, you know, graffiti in the background. It's always these stories of hopelessness and despair. And I feel like if you tell a story that tells white America that racism is ineraceable, what are they going to do with that? Mm. What incentive do they have to change? You know, and I want to tell the story like, no, you can change. People can change. Look at my white members of my family. Mm. You know, And if people can change, so can the country. So I didn't want to tell one of these hopeless, bleak stories, you know, that you know, racism is 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 this deity that can't be conquered, you know. So that's part of the motivation as well. Well, the book is you're doing a, your first like book launch event tonight, right? Yeah, yeah. I hope they don't ask tough questions like you. You oh, asked no. me. <laughs> you did phenomenally. Um, really, thank you for the gift of this book. Um, our stories are sacred. And and like you said, it, it's, a, it's a very vulnerable place to be to share it. And my hope is that it does give people hope. You're not, you know, unaware of the difficulty of the racial impasses in our nation. But yet you you stand, you, you are the living embodiment of how people can change and come together. So I do hope folks receive that for you. The book is called More Than I Imagined. What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. John, what's the best way to support you in this endeavor and keep up with your work? Well, um, I'm I'm pretty uh, accessible via social media. And if you're so inclined, it'd be great if you could, you know, purchase the book. But otherwise, I just, you know, in your personal life, I just hope people don't give up Mm -hmm. on this country. Don't give up on people who seem different and and don't give give up to the cynicism and despair. That would be great. I've had great reactions so far from all types of people. And that's been really gratifying. Well, you should be proud of this. Thank you again for this book. And thank you for this conversation. Hopefully you'll be back on footnotes at the appropriate point. Thank you.